All right, well, we are in part three of a series called Hallelujah, kind of wrapping that up or leading into uh, Easter next week. And so what we've done every week we have entered into this time together is we have gone back and defined the word hallelujah. And I want to go back and do that today. And you think, well, I know that. I've heard it. You've told me twice before. But the reason I want to tell you again is because we're easy to forget. But really today, the meaning of this word really has more impact and emphasis, I think, than, than the other two messages or weeks previous. Today, I think this word really can capture our hearts and understanding what it is we're actually supposed to do with our praise and our worship and our lives given to God. So we've looked at this series and, and this word, hallelujah, and what it means to us, the understanding of it, and the application for us as well. So let's define it once again. The word hallelujah is joining together of two Hebrew words to make one word. And those two, two Hebrew words are hallelujah, which simply means to praise, and then y'all, which is short for Yahweh. So hallelujah simply just means praise Yahweh. Now in their day and time when this was written, it was important because there was a multitude of gods. There were gods everywhere that you could praise for fertility or for success or for agriculture. There, there were gods everywhere you turned from other nations and other peoples. And so this word hallelujah was important for the people of God because we're naturally as people of, of, of mankind, as, as human beings, we're going to praise or give glory to something. You go to any arena, any ball field, any so any, uh, any business that has some type of award ceremony, you watch on TV the award ceremonies we see for celebrities, we're going to praise something. We're going to praise people for a job well done or for their lifestyle or, or for the clothes that they wear or the cars that they drive or the success they may have in the marketplace. We're people who are going to praise and so this word is given to us as a reminder that our praise, our worship is to be given to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And that word Yahweh, the name is important because it is the name of God that he gave to himself. No one gave him this name. No one said, hey, I think we should call this almighty being who created all the stars and the universe and the microcosmic things inside of my body and the organisms that live on the earth. We should give him a name. But God says, no, this is what you call me. You call me Yahweh. And this word, this name is important for two reasons. First is because it's the personal name of God. He says, this is how you can know me. You can have relationship with me because you can call me Yahweh on a first name basis. You can know who I am. The second reason that's important is because that word Yahweh is tied to a Hebrew verb, which simply means I am. And so God says, whatever you need, whatever you want, I am the bread of life, I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am whatever you need in your life, anything you could think of that you would want or need from a God, not from a genie in a bottle, but from a God who would love you and be just toward you and give grace to you and mercy when you fail and when you struggle, who would step into your life and care for you and provide in every circumstance that you ever needed, not necessarily that you wanted. Anything you could think of, anything you could need, I am that greatness, I am that power, that might, that majesty, the ability. I have everything that you could ever need or desire in life. And so this name Yahweh is God saying, I am anything and everything, I'm above all things because nothing created me, I've existed forever and I simply am. There is no one else. Everything funnels and flows from me. It doesn't come to me from someplace else, it comes out of me. And so from that, God says, I am great, I am powerful, but at the same time, I am personable, I am intimate, and I am knowable. And throughout this series, we have looked at this word, hallelujah, and how it impacts our lives and how we learn to give God praise and glory for everything that we have and know and see in life. 
In the very first week, we looked at a man named Jehoshaphat in the Old Testament who was one of the very few good kings of the people of Judah. And we saw Jehoshaphat for the first time in his life, probably professionally and and spiritually, for the very first time, have this overwhelming sense that I need God more than anything else. He found himself in a situation that he could not control. Probably the rest of his life before, he was able to manipulate and manufacture everything he had ever needed. But in this instance, he was overwhelmed and outnumbered by the enemy, and he simply had to look toward God. He was so outnumbered, he said, God, I don't know what to do. I have no answer. I have no answer for what is coming at me. But he said, this one thing I know, that our eyes, my eyes are on you because I know that you are I am. I know that you are great. I know that you are powerful and I know that you are mighty, but I also know that you are friend, caregiver, savior, sacrificer, rescuer, redeemer. I know that I can call out to you personally and you know me personally. And so you see my situation, you see my circumstance and I know that you wanna move for your glory and for my good. And so God, I am begging you to move because I'm outnumbered and I have nowhere else to turn. And then last week, We saw a man named David who was the greatest king Israel ever had, but probably messed up more than any other king Israel ever knew. He was this man who should have known and understood the presence of God, what it meant to walk with him, to be with him. But we saw David send away, literally push away the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant which was the symbol that we'll talk about in a minute. It was the symbol that God used to be with and to be among his people. It wasn't just a box. It wasn't just this uh, box that would contain holy artifacts, but it was actually the place where God would manifest himself to his people and he could be in their presence and they could be in his presence. It was so powerful and so great and God wanted to move in his way and not in David's time that David said, I, I wanna send this to somebody else's house. And for three months, David had to watch the other household experience blessing after blessing not because they gained physical prosperity, not because material things just began to increase in their life, but because this presence of God existed in their household and with their people. They had peace and hope and joy like nobody else had experienced because the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was there with that household. And David went running back and racing back and says, I have to have the presence of God in my life. I'm not gonna send it away or push it away anymore. And today we're gonna look at a man named Samuel who is a prophet. A prophet for the people of Israel who encountered the Ark of the Covenant like David did. Who is going to call the people of God back to this presence of and relationship with and walking with God. See, the Israelite people are really no different than their King David and they're really no different than you and I. They struggled with presence with God of walking away from him, sending him away, doing things in their own idea, in their own plan, in their own mind. They struggled simply with fidelity to God. They wanted to have a relationship with God, but they wanted to have relationship with other gods as well. Because they didn't think that this almighty God, who is almighty, which simply means all-encompassing, all-powerful, you don't need an addition, you don't need to substitute, you don't need somebody to come in and supplement whatever God cannot do. Because God says, I simply am, I can do and be all things. And so this people of God would walk away from him because he wouldn't answer their circumstance the way they hoped that he would. They wouldn't come through in the timing that they had written out and planned for themselves. He didn't do things in the way they thought he should. And so they would send him away and they would walk away from him just like their King David did. And so Samuel is going to call this group of people back to a relationship with God and walking with him and honoring him in the right way. Because what they did is they took this Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of the presence of God. 
which you and I don't need anymore because Jesus made it possible for us to be in relationship with God all the time. But this ark in that day before Jesus, the Messiah came, was this presence of God, but unfortunately the people of God treated it with disrespect. They treated it more like a good luck charm, like a little rabbit's foot hanging or maybe even a cross on the wall, a bumper sticker on the fender, or a pillow or a coffee cup on the counter. They treated it simply like a good luck charm that if we rub it, if we hold it, if we take care of it, if we open it from time to time, or if we ask God in the right way, then maybe he'll perform the way we want him to. That he can sit to the side for a little while, and when we need him, we'll come talk to him. When we need him, we'll show up and we'll be there and we'll ask him to move on our behalf. And they simply expected God to perform even when they did not honor him as God. And this shows up very evidently for the very first time, maybe for you, but maybe for the very first time with the Ark of the Covenant. This shows up in the people of God and how they treated God like a a thing. And they treated the Ark of the Covenant like a good luck charm. In their battle with the Philistines that we met last week, In the very first battle in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where they lost the Ark of the Covenant for the very first time. And this is what Samuel says in his writing in chapter 4 verse 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer. Now remember this place, or remember this name, it's going to be important at the end of our time together. They camped at at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines, they drew up a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of their men out in the field of battle. And when the troops came back to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us before the Philistines? Now notice this, they didn't say, why did the Philistines defeat us? Israel was routed. They expected to go into this enemy and into this battle, and they expected to come out victorious because they had the Ark of the Covenant with them. They had the presence of God. He was on their side. They went to church like they were supposed to. They gave money at the synagogue or at the temple or the tabernacle. They they showed up and they did the right things and surely God would show up for them. And they had at least enough presence of mind to realize that they weren't defeated by the Philistines. They were defeated by God himself. Now why in the world would God himself defeat his own people? And so it continues, and this is what they said. So let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. They said, oh, I get it, I understand. They came back together like all good armies do, and they debriefed. They said, okay, what happened? What went wrong? You sent this this platoon out to this side, and you sent these guys out to this side, and we were routed from all sides. We have to go back, and we have to come up with a new plan. And as the elders are gathering together with the military leaders, they decided, I get it. The good luck charm was somewhere else. We didn't take the cross with us. We didn't have the pillow. We didn't rub the coffee cup the right way. We didn't have the Ark of the Covenant literally in the battlefield with us. How stupid of us. How could we have left that trinket over to the side? Because it has the power and the might of God, right? How could we have left our Bible at home? How could we have not worn the cross necklace that day? Because if we would have, surely God wouldn't have defeated us. And so they devised a plan. We're going to go to battle again, and this time, we're going to take the rabbit's foot with us. This time, we're taking the trinket. This time, we're going to hold on to that cross necklace. We're going to read a couple of pages in the Bible before we go out. 
And surely this time we'll be victorious. See, we have to remember the Ark of the Covenant was more than just a symbol. It was more than just a box and this, these gold cherubims, these angels with closed wings on top and holy artifacts inside. It was more than just those things. It was the holy, powerful presence, the greatness, the I amness, the majesty, and the might of this holy God, the holiness of God that we cannot take in physically. That if we see the holiness of God physically, we would be undone, as Isaiah said. We would be ruined. We would turn to ash, not like Medusa, but we would turn to ash because of his holiness and his greatness. And they had reduced him down to a trinket we get out of a gumball machine for 25 cents. It was the presence of the almighty God. But they had decided if we had just taken this trinket with us, then surely we would have the victory. So he goes on to talk about the next battle in verses five through seven. And it says, as soon as the Ark of the Covenant came into the, of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all of Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Like these guys were excited. They were ecstatic. They were happy, a little bit like you guys were today to be at church. They were fired up. And he goes on to say, and when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews, which are also called the Israelites, mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines, not the people of God, the Philistines were afraid. Even the people who did not believe in God, remember the New Testament says the angels even know God and shudder at his name and at his voice. The enemy understood the greatness of the Ark of the Covenant probably more than the people of God who possessed it. And they shuddered and they said, a God has come into this camp. And they said, woe to us. We're ruined. We're finished. We are undone. For nothing like this has ever happened before. And so the Ark of the Covenant comes back from Shiloh into the battlefield and they're ready to go off into the next battle. And the people of God are so excited. They're ready to raise that hallelujah and shout to the hilltops and raise their hands. And they're ready. They shout so loud that the earth literally moves. And I don't mean just moves a little around them. It moves and transfers like an earthquake that's felt 60 miles away. And the Philistines feel the movement of the ground because the people of God shouted because they were so excited that the Ark of the Covenant was back in their midst. And surely enough, if we got that trinket, surely enough, if we hold on to that cross, surely enough, if we put enough crosses around our house or pillows on our couches, surely enough, if we drink out of the right coffee mug, if we hold our mouths right and stand on the right foot, surely God will move on our behalf. And so the Philistines were afraid. But the Philistines weren't so afraid that they were running away from battle. They decided to muster up enough courage to say, I know this has never happened before, but we can't run home and tell our families we just deserted the battlefield. So they go out into the battle and they're ready to take on this second battle with Israel. It goes on in verse 10. It says, so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. Let me make sure I read that right. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter, not a little slaughter, not like a little bit like the last time where 4,000 men died, which seemed like a, an atrocity. This time there was a great slaughter for there fell from Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And not only that, the Ark of the Covenant of God had been taken out of their midst. 
Now, if, if you're a part of Israel, you've got to be wondering, what in the world just happened? What just took place? Because I get it. The first time we went into battle, we faced our circumstance. We confronted our enemy. We lost 4,000 soldiers. I get it. We didn't have the Ark of God, Ark of the Covenant. We pushed it off to the side, and we didn't honor it like we were supposed to. But this time, I don't know what happened. I prayed to God. I begged God. I showed up when I was supposed to. I did the thing. I went through all the ordinances and I I did the spiritual, religious, rote thing I was supposed to do. And I went into battle and I faced my circumstance. And now all of a sudden I've lost 30,000. It's better to not have the Ark of the Covenant than to have the Ark of the Covenant. That's what we would deduce. The problem was, instead of praising Yahweh, they were playing God. And I don't mean playing God like I'm going to orchestrate. I mean playing God like you got played in your first relationship in middle school. Right? I mean, you got played, playa. You thought you were the playa, but you got played. You lost everything. Instead of praising God for who he is, to say, I I don't care about my circumstance. I don't care about what happens to me. I don't care about what I get physically in this life. What happens to my name or my promotion or my status at work. They were trying to orchestrate and maneuver God. They were treating him like a trinket. Like this thing that could be managed and manufactured and put in the right way and the pieces in the right order that would spit out a result that we had already predetermined should happen. And they were treating God like this thing and treating the Ark of the Covenant like this trinket. And instead of worshiping God for his presence, they were hoping he would show up with his power and his might. They wanted the benefits without the relationship and they wanted the rewards without the worship and instead of winning the battle they lost the most important thing they ever had and didn't know it which was the ark of the covenant which really was the presence of god himself and they lost everything and you and i have those moments where we have those fights and we have those battles maybe it's illness maybe it's relationship maybe it's disease or job loss or financial struggle And we face those similar things in our lives. And we get confused. Remember, the people of Israel shouted so loud that it caused the earth to tremble to the other camp. We get confused in those moments because we thought we raised our hallelujah when all we did was we wanted God to fix the problem. We didn't really praise Yahweh. We rubbed the bottle and hoped the genie would come out and fix our situation. We shouted loudly, but we trusted very little. We shook our fists, we raised our voices, and we gave the enemy everything we had, and we came up short. And we realized, I didn't ask God first. I should have begged him to move in this situation because I need it to be changed, I need it to be fixed. And we run back toward God and say, okay, you know, I messed it up, I got it all out of order, but here's the situation, here's the deal, and here's, here's the result I need. So God, I'm just coming to you, and I hope you just rubber stamp this plan or move in this way or move this out of the way, because this is really what I need in my life. I've already got it all planned out, and so I just need you to show up in the battle next time, and I'm going to stand there, and I'm going to shout, and I'm going to stand and be ready, and I just need you to move. And we beg God to do that, and instead of our circumstance getting better, sometimes it gets worse. And we wonder, how in the world can God be defeated? And we, like the Israelites, we we show up and we want God to move because of his might and his power. And we never even gave him the honor, worship, and glory that he deserved in the beginning. 
we just shoved him off to the side. And in those times, we forget that our greatest battle is not at the enemy coming at us, but our greatest battle is the enemy that exists within us. The greatest battle we face is spiritual. It is not any cancer that can come at us, even though that is utterly devastating. It is not any job loss that we experience and encounter because all of us have experienced those and have made it out somewhat successfully or at least survived. It's not those external factors. It's the internal spiritual battle that we have and the fight between our faith or lack thereof. That's the battle you and I face. It is not the external It is not in the things that come at us, but simply in the things that exist inside of us. And we want God to move for us instead of waiting for God to move in us. We send the presence of God away. We push it to the side and we simply pull it out when we need something from him. And we thought we raised our hallelujah. We just wanted God to fix our problem. And so the Philistines took the Ark of the Covenant into their possession and they had it for seven months. Remember, David lost it for three months and watched the blessing happen to other people. The Philistines took possession of this for seven months and they weren't the people of God and they didn't honor God any, in the right way just like the Israelites didn't. And so God moved because he is holy and he's powerful and he's mighty. And so these guys possessed the greatest thing on the planet, the Ark of the Covenant, not Indiana Jones type deal, but the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God existed. And they did not honor him. They just wanted to add him to their collection. That he could be a part of their collection or their pantheon of gods. That they could add another resource to supplement what they needed to be victorious in life. And over the course of those seven months, what they discovered was that that this God, this almighty God, Yahweh, I am, greater than everything, was more powerful than any other God they had in their existence. Their main God was Dagon and they had this structure built of him. And as they came out one morning, this structure built of stone literally was bowed down before the Ark of the Covenant, which is like impossible to happen. Nobody could do that. There was no David Blaine at that time, right? Nobody could make that happen. So they position, reposition, I don't know, maybe they break it apart and restructure and remake this God because that's that's their main God. They go to bed the second night. They come back out again the next morning and guess what happens? That same God is bowed down before the Ark of the Covenant, not because of the box, Not even because of the the tablets that are inside of it, but because the power and the greatness and the majesty of this almighty God that's above all things and greater than all things. And they said, we have got to get rid of this box. We don't need it anymore. And so they devised this cart and they rolled it back out and they decided to give it back to the Israelites. Like here, I know we beat you, but you can have all your booty and your bounty back. You can have all it. We don't need it anymore. You keep your God. We're good without him. So they rolled it back to Israel. And you would think, right? Okay, so we've, we've lost two battles. We have lost 34,000 soldiers. We lost the Ark of the Covenant and we sent away the presence of our God and we should be excited to have this thing back. You've been in those seasons where you sent God away or you ignored him or you denied him or you just said, sit in the corner, I'm in charge for a while. And all of a sudden, God starts to move in your heart or move in your situation or circumstance and he doesn't even have to do that. And you would think in that moment, we get it, like the light goes off, finally we have the presence of God back, that's all we ever needed to begin with. And so they roll the Ark of the Covenant back in in chapter 7, skip ahead to chapter 7, verse 2. They roll the Ark of the Covenant back to the people. And so it says, from the day that the Ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, 
a long time passed. So the Philistines roll this Ark of the Covenant back and they leave it in Israel. And a long time passes, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Two decades. It took 20 more years for the people of God to understand the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant. They still, for 20 years, thought that it was a trinket. They came to church every Sunday thinking God was just a genie in a bottle, there to answer any request that we may have because we acted faithfully and obediently like we're supposed to. We've been good little children. For 20 years, they walked back and forth past this thing, wondering, when's something going to happen for me? I gave money. I said prayers. I even kind of asked for forgiveness once. This box, it's just a piece of junk. Coming to church, it's just a waste of time. Reading my Bible, it's just an old book. It took them 20 years to realize the most important thing in life was not a box called the Ark of the Covenant. It was not even the holy artifacts that were inside. The most important thing that they ever had lost and could ever get back was simply being in the presence of God himself relationship with this Yahweh who is I am who is great and powerful and mighty but says I want to know you because I've given myself a personal name that you could call me by and all of us have tried everything else we have played God for a long time and we have thought if I can just act the right way or do the right thing or say the right thing or show up when I'm supposed to God will bless my business he'll restore my relationships He'll give me money flowing over and over and over again because, goodness, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Why couldn't he? And just like the Israelites, we treated God like a trinket and the Ark of the Covenant like a rabbit's foot or a genie in the bottle. And 20 years later, the Israelites finally, finally come to a place of understanding the purpose of the Ark It's not about a thing and it's not about results and it's not about asking or begging God to do certain things on our behalf. There's a symbol and more than a symbol that when you and I get together and we have worship and fellowship together, when we experience community with one another in groups, when we walk together, we do mission together, when we simply exist and live in our homes together, the greatest thing we possess is God himself. And so Samuel, this is where he comes into the picture in verse three and calls the people back to repentance and Samuel said to all the house of Israel if you're returning to the Lord because maybe they had shown some small signs of trying if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart not just part of it because God wants all of it if you're returning to God with all your heart then this is what you should do you should put away all of your foreign gods all the things you put your hope and your trust in and you should put away the Asherah pole which is this pole that other gods other uh, people would worship from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and then he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel says, look, if you really want to have God, if you've come to the place where you've spent everything else, you've exhausted every other avenue and you're tired of playing with God, You're tired of just kind of throwing your toe in the water. You're tired of just messing with him and hoping he'll show up. If you're really ready to walk with God, you get rid of everything you've ever put your hope in. Every relationship, every boy, every girl, every dollar you've ever made, every promotion you may ever get, 
You put aside everything else you have given worship to and praise to and value to. You put it aside and you set your heart on God. And at that moment, then you will have a relationship with him and he will take care of all of your problems. I don't mean fix them all like you want. But I mean, no matter what is coming at you, you'll have peace and hope in the midst of it. And so he gathers all of them together for praying and fasting. And as the people finally turn their hearts toward God, they cry out collectively toward God and they say these words, that we have sinned against the Lord. Samuel brings the people to a place of confession. And they said, we've done that. We have treated God like a thing and the ark like a trinket. I I confess, I messed up. I made a grave mistake. And when I make a mistake toward God, it's called sin because of his holiness and his greatness. And so Samuel judged the people. And we think, oh, you're not supposed to judge people. There is judgment and there will be judgment. Judgment is past because wrongdoing exists. But God in his grace says that when there is confession, I messed up, I made a mistake, I walked against your holy law, then that leads to repentance, which is a change of mindset and a change of behavior and a change of thought process and a change of heart and worship. And that leads to forgiveness. And so God gives them an opportunity and a way for these people to be forgiven in the midst of their mess up, in the midst of their mistake, in the midst of their wrongdoing. But the battle's still not over. The Philistines are still their enemy and the Philistines are still coming at the people of God, which is what it says in verse seven. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Notice that. They weren't, they weren't scared to admit their fear. Just because you trust God doesn't mean that all of your emotions are gone or everything is taken care of or everything is fine on this earth, that you should suppress those emotions. It's okay to say, I don't know how I'm gonna figure this out. It's okay to say, I got a grave diagnosis and I don't know how I'm gonna deal with this. It's okay to say, my heart is broken because my child has walked away. It's all right to say, I don't know what to do because my spouse has left. It's okay. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to not know what's gonna happen. But watch what happens now that the people have relationship and walking in the presence of God again. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us. Before they made their own battle plan, this is what we're going to do. Now when they realize the presence of God and relationship with him is the most important thing, they said, Samuel, don't you quit crying out to God because that's all we've got. Like Jehoshaphat, I don't know what I'm gonna do but my eyes are on you. Please continue to pray for him that he may save us from the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb. As they're praying, as they're begging God, Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered them. And you may think, what in the world does a lamb have to do with all of this situation? That you and I know that for anything good to happen in life, there has to be sacrifice. In any situation in life, You can't just show up and have the good things in life without sacrificing something. And so in the Old Testament, there was this process that God set up that anytime people transgress, which is walking against his law, what the Israelites have done here, what you and I do all the time, that anytime we have come to that place and we realize our mistake and we wanna confess to God and repent and ask for forgiveness, then we sacrifice something to say, God, I'm giving you this to say, I messed up. 
And in that day and time, God would have them sacrifice animals that were young, that were without blemish, that were perfect, that were spotless. And so as that lamb was broken and sacrificed on behalf of the people, which this, this cost them something. This was an agriculturally minded people. This didn't just happen because somebody paid 50 bucks to go get a lamb at Tractor Supply. This was one of theirs that they had raised that they had to give up to say, God, here is my offering. I'm royally messed up. And that lamb would be sacrificed. And the blood that would pour out would be a sign that God would purify their sins. Now, this is the beautiful picture of what happens in the New Testament. That this is just a sign and a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah for all of the world. See, what Samuel was doing was atoning for the sin of the Israelites, which means it was paying for or covering that sin so that it could be taken away. And that blood would bring about the atonement for that sin. But it would only last for a little while and a little time. So there had to be one who would come, the Messiah that God had been talking about for all of history. This one who was the Son of God, who was called the Lamb of God, that he himself would be sacrificed. His blood would be poured out, and because he was perfect, this blood was perfect. And it would satisfy God's wrath towards sin because we broke the holy law of God. And this sin would be covered, it would atone for, which means it would pay for. It would cover all of our wrongdoing, all of our mistake, all of our error, and all of our sin for anyone who would trust in the blood of that perfect one, Jesus Christ, to satisfy our debt with God. And these people knew, the Israelites knew, that this was the only thing they could rely on, which was God showing up on their behalf. And so instead of treating the ark like a trinket and treating God like a thing, these people honored God properly. They honored relationship with him, presence with him amongst their midst. And they said, this is the only thing we can count on. Now notice this, their circumstance hadn't changed. The enemy was still coming at them, the enemy that had defeated them twice before. The enemy they didn't have an answer for. The enemy they didn't even have a plan drawn up for because their last two plans had failed and there is no evidence of them with their leaders and elders sitting down devising a plan to defeat the Philistines that were coming at him that they were 0-2 with. This time, they just said, God, we're just gonna cry out to you because you're all I've got. I've tried everything that I could think of and I have nothing left. And so in verse 10, as Samuel's offering up this burnt offering and the Philistines are still coming at the Israelites, it says as Samuel was offering this burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. And you've got to think, like we've lost twice before. We're ready to lose this battle, but God, we're trusting you. We don't know how it's going to work out. But the Lord thundered a mighty sound. Remember the first time, the first battle, the people of God raised their voices and the earth shook and nothing changed. This time, they beg God to move on their behalf, and this time, the Lord, who is Yahweh Almighty, I am great, let out a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. This time, they begged for God to move because they knew that his presence and walking with him and praising him was more important than anything else. And when they didn't devise the plan and they trusted God to come through for him, he attacked and destroyed their enemy. Now, here's what I want you to know. Because we live in a society and we live in a day that if we just shout loud enough or we just believe hard enough or we just say the right things, that everything's gonna work out. 
And we can misconstrue this idea of hallelujah because we do want to sing. We do want to praise. We do want to lift our voices. But here's what you have to know. Your hallelujah is not necessarily about how loud you shout, but more about how much you praise. It's not about how loud you lift your voice and say, God, I know you're going to come through. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to worry. God, I just know you're going to do this. I hope the Ark of the Covenant comes out of the corner and it shows up and it fights this battle for me. It's not about how loud you shout, although we should shout because we know he's victorious. It's more about how much you praise to say, God, you alone are worthy. You alone are powerful. You alone are mighty, and if you don't move and defeat my situation, my circumstance, or my enemy, I'm still gonna praise you because you're worthy simply because you are. It's a very similar situation from chapter four. This time, they just treated God differently. This time they just understood that God was the only hope that they had as a people. So sometimes it's not about how loud you shout your hallelujah. It's about how much you praise your God in the midst of any circumstance, any battle, or any situation in life. And so he wanted them to remember, Samuel did in verse 12 and 13. So after God won this victory and this battle for him in verse 12, this is what Samuel did. Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin, and he called it, watch this name. Remember that name from the very beginning in chapter four? He called it Ebenezer. This was the place that the people of God left from to fight the battle on their own. But as God fought the battle for them, they raised an Ebenezer and said, till now the Lord has helped us. He raised this, this Ebenezer, this stone, and he says, this is the God of our help. This is the stone of help for us. And we will trust, not in a stone, but we will trust in our God. No matter what comes at us, no matter what comes our way, no matter what is coming to fight us or destroy us or defeat us, we're gonna place this in the ground in this moment. And every time the people of God came back to this stone and back to this statue, it wasn't just a place for them to bow down and say, okay, let's say holy prayers. But it was a moment in time where they remembered we can't rely on ourselves and we can't shout our way out of this. We simply have to praise and trust in our God because he is mighty and powerful to do whatever he desires to do. And no matter what happens to my circumstance, I'm still going to praise my God. And Samuel took this Ebenezer stone and he placed it there that every time we got in a situation where we thought, I'm going to do it my way, I'm going to pull God out of the box and I'm going to have him just solve my situation for me. We remember till now, till this point, God has helped us. Why would we quit trusting him in the future? Why would we try to make our own way? Why would we try to make our own plan? Why would we doubt? Why would we question? Why would we treat him like a trinket? Because he's holy. He's not something we get out of a gumball machine. He's not something we do every so often or a place we show up to once or twice a year. He's not a cross that we just simply rub or place on our walls. He's the holy, powerful, almighty, yet intimate, knowable God. And the most important thing you can do with your hallelujah is to say, I praise you, Yahweh, because you alone are worth praising and you alone are worth remembering and you alone are worth trusting. So the people of Israel that day, they had a stone to remember God by, to remember that the most important thing in life is not a box, not a place, not a building, not a job, not a relationship with any other human being. And the most important thing in life is relationship with God himself. And Samuel wanted the people to remember that very thing. 
And so today, you get a chance to remember as well. We're going to enter into what we call this communion. And for us, it's very similar to Samuel raising that Ebenezer stone and placing it. That every time the Israelite people would come back, they would remember what God has done on their behalf. And for us, it's not a lamb that Samuel sacrificed. For us, it's the Son of God that God himself sacrificed on our behalf. That Jesus was placed on a cross, that he said, I'll give my life to pay for or to atone for the sin and the wrongdoing that all of mankind has done, just like Samuel did for the people of Israel. But this sacrifice, this atonement, wouldn't just last for a season, it would last forever. For anyone who would trust and believe in this Messiah, Jesus Christ, that he could give them relationship with God and peace and hope and forgiveness they had been searching for, for anyone who would trust in him, God would give them forgiveness And not just forgiveness, he would give them a relationship with himself forever. That no matter what circumstance or situation they found themselves in, that they, like the people of Israel, could remember their Ebenezer. They could remember that moment when Jesus went onto the cross and took the cross upon himself to say, I love you enough to sacrifice my blood so that you could have forgiveness and relationship with me. So for us, for those who believe and trust in God, from time to time we take communion and we take a piece of bread And we take a cup that's filled with juice to remember God breaking the body of Christ in half like that lamb was done for Samuel. That Jesus broke his body and and allowed himself to be broken for us. And because of his brokenness, his blood poured out and the cup reminds us of the blood of Christ. That when we take the body, the bread, we remember the body of Christ. When we take the juice, we remember the blood of Christ that covers all of our sin for those who trust and believe in him. And so we have different ways for you to do that. For some of you, you feel comfortable with a little cracker. For others, there are pieces of bread that have been torn off. And for some, there's a loaf of bread that you can tear off for yourself. For the juice, there's a cup that you can simply take or a goblet you can dip into. It really doesn't matter how you do that. What, what matters is that you and I, like the people of God, we remember that Ebenezer. And for us, it's the cross of Christ. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus so that we can have a relationship with God, so that we could experience his presence anywhere and everywhere we go, no matter what happens to us. And so I'm gonna pray for us. And whenever you're ready, we encourage you, if you're believing and trusting in God, to come to one of these tables with your family or with your group or individually, just to come and to take and remember the body and the blood of Christ that has been broken and sacrificed on our behalf, that we get a chance to say, thus far, God has helped me in Christ. Why would I ever trust or praise someone else? And if you're not a believer today, you're not believing in God, we just encourage you just to sit and watch and think about how God has changed the lives of these people, that he wants to do the very same thing with you, that you're no different than anybody else in this room. That God wants you to lead you to a place of confession. And he'll bring about that forgiveness through your repenting of your sin and your wrongdoing as well. And I'm gonna sit over on the front as everybody comes to take the cup and the juice. If you just have questions about God, I would love to talk to you about that. That's the most important thing in life. And so I'm gonna pray, and then when you're ready, it doesn't have to happen by row, just when you're ready individually or as a family, come and take communion and celebrate and remember the blood of Christ with us. God, we pray that this morning would be a reminder and a remembrance for us that the most important thing in life is that your son, perfect, holy, spotless without error, gave up himself so that he could be broken, so that his blood could be poured out, 
so that the people who cry out and call out your name, who trust and believe in you, can have forgiveness and relationship and experience the presence of God that we all desperately need and desire. So Father, I pray, like the Israelite people, that we would remember. We'd remember the purpose of our relationship, not so that we can get benefits from you or rewards from walking with you, because the reward is simply you. The benefit is simply that we get to be with you. And so God, help us to remember that, to remember you today as we move into a time of celebrating your resurrection, that today we celebrate your willingness to be broken and to be a sacrifice, to atone, to pay for our sin and wrongdoing, even when you didn't have to. So God, help us to lift and raise our hallelujah, not necessarily our shouts of victory, but let us lift our praise and our honor to you. Let us remember that without you, we have no hope. God, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your love. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.